0: So the last time we finished up Hebrews chapters ten and eleven um, and we called that confident in Christ. And so you know we as the, the author of Hebrews kind of kind of finished the chapter of, of looking at all those that um, were our great cloud of witnesses, we kind of looked at this idea that we, we each run a race, using you know he used that language specifically, and so we each have an individual race that we have to run, and so Uh, in light of that race, you know, he said we should take every weight, you know, the encumbrances that are on us and the sin that holds so closely to this and let's cast them aside. Um, And so we look at the people in scripture who had to overcome struggles and still remain confident in the Lord. And, and all of those are examples to us to help us increase our faith and really finish that race. Well, and, uh, as we get to the end, I know like the last couple chapters that we're going to do, and this one was one that I actually wasn't planning on doing, but as I thought about it, I wanted to be in 1 John, but I didn't know when, so I was going to do it next week, but I think it fits well, particularly on what we what we just finished up with um, Hebrews 10 and 11, uh, but more specifically, um, you know, this uh, a verse in this chapter was really kind of what helped my mom uh, come to saving faith, so kind of has a special... Place in in uh, in my own heart, but as we've talked about this idea of you know what faith is and that we can grow in this confidence of faith, you know John kind of talks about you know what believing is. He doesn't dissect it in that way, but he almost speaks in a way that that um, comes from a uh, not a hope, but a this is true. And so when we talk about that idea of You know, what does it mean to believe? There's a subject that's called epistemology. You guys heard of epistemology? Um, And so epistemology is the study of knowing. Uh, So it's interesting that that word uh, episteme, um, which I don't know if it's not found in Scripture at all, but it's a Greek word, but not usually found in Scripture. So to know is usually a different word, and we'll talk about that later. But it's to know in a sense of through study, so it's the study of knowing through studying. It almost sounds like a circular way um, of how they're, <coughs> how they're using it. So what really distinguishes something from just an opinion that you have to something that is what's called justifiable knowledge. And so, in other words, how can we know something is true versus just thinking it might be true? So it sounds like kind of splitting hairs or a fine line, but there is something like that that's there. So, how do we know something? We often know that we, you know, there's this idea of when we say we know something, we acquire knowledge through a whole bunch of different resources, um, through, you know, learning in different modes, whether it's, uh, you know, reading a book or watching a video, observing somebody, you know, being told by a teacher, um, experiencing it ourselves. There's different ways that we come to know different things. Um, And there is a difference between knowing and believing, at least in how we use that word. And interestingly, um, to know something is found in almost every culture and language. Uh, It's also one of the top ten words that we use um, in English uh, commonly is to know. I think it's number eight or something on on the list of words we repeat. So this idea of knowing is something that seems to be kind of this universal idea um, that is cultural and worldwide. And so, uh, some say that there's ingredients to knowing, meaning like belief plus truth is something that you know, or, you know, not being wrong um, is this idea of of what is true. And then some would say that you have to add this ingredient of confidence, right? And so, if you were, you know... um, if you use the example often, the example is used is understanding. It's probably good that we're in the room that we're in now. If I said, uh, or if I told you to even close your eyes, and I said, "Is it raining outside?" What would your answer be? Okay. Somewhere. Now, how? What's that? Somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> I've never, I've never, uh, I don't know, I've never, I was never taught that. Does is, uh, is rain have to be coming down at some point in the earth at some, at any given time? What's that? Is that like the water cycle? So, anyway. All right. So, we'll just say outside our door in the parking lot right here. Okay. So, um, you know, is it raining? You say no. Now, how do you know it's not raining? What's that? Look out the window. We can look out the window. So, how do you know right now? Can you see, a, I guess maybe like that? That window is a little cracked, but otherwise. What's that? Got You've got the weather app, yeah. Did anybody go outside yesterday morning? So, my son had a, had a scrimmage football game, and uh, so we went, and you look at the weather, and it says 4% chance of rain, and there's nothing on the radar, but as we're driving, it's like coming, you know, sprinkling, it's like wet. Then the you know, then the question is is, well, is is this technically rain? You know the radar says it isn't, but I'm experiencing it differently. You know so so what is it? So um, so this idea right? So you can say I know it's not raining, right? And yes, you can look out the window and that gives you some validity to it. But let's say you're in a windowless room that was soundproof and you know you just woke up. Like could you could you know like so then it becomes to a um, I think it's not raining, right? And so there's a degree of confidence uh, that you might have depending on your experience and your situation. So to know something right, has to have this idea of, of this confidence in uh, whatever it is is true. And then there's this idea of, you know, I said justifiable knowledge, that you have a good basis for the assumption that you're making. So I know we're getting kind of like splitting hairs, but I'm just kind of like introducing you to the subject, you know, of, of all the things that you can think about. So what's a good basis, right? So you wake up and you think like, I don't know, you're getting married that day. And so that's um, actually like there was a rain story in our, in our, our marriage. Where's Sarah? Is she she here? She escaped. She left. All right, I can talk about her. So anyway, um, no. So I won't go ahead and get into that. But uh, other, basically, like sh- short story was like it looked like it was going to rain, and we were gonna we had a wedding on the beach. We were in Mexico, and it was like, do you want to have it on the beach or do you want us to move it inside? And she said, I want it on the beach, and so there was no rain. So anyway, so it was, uh, that, was, that was wonderful. But she had to make a call you know, on, on whether it is. But let's say there's a party or something, you know, some big event, and you, know, you are a half glass empty type person, and you're like, it's just going gonna, gonna to rain. I know it. Right? And so you don't necessarily have a good basis for why it's going to rain, other than the fact that like, because it's something good, you're just saying it's probably going to rain. Now, if it's true and it does rain, what does that tell you? Does it tell you anything? <laughs> Other than, yeah, like, you guessed right. And so, like, I knew it wasn't going to rain, you know, type of thing. So sometimes there's, like, a because of your attitude or your uh, mentality. Everyone's probably heard of the the cliche, right? Uh, a stop clock is correct how many times a day? A time. Twice a day, right? Um, so that clock is still working. You know, every once in a while there's, like still, the time is still the same. Um, but right, a clock, oh, stop clock is right twice a day. So sometimes it happens to be true, but there is no justifiable basis for it to be true, right? It just happened to be the clock was stopped on the time that you could verify with maybe another clock. And so you happen to be right, but there's no basis for it. And just, again, negative attitude, you just happen to be right. Statistically speaking, you're in the minority, but it, it ended up happening. So, those are, those are some kind of ideas to think about what that looks like. And even when I said, like, hey, it says on the radar it's not raining and there's a short, short chance of rain, and but is this actually rain itself? But that could go into a whole other experience. So when I was in seminary, we, we had uh, you know, an, an apologetics course. And so in that apologetics course, we were introduced to um, this idea of what's called presuppositional apologetics, and that's using the presupposition that everyone has a knowledge of God and so, using scripture as your basis, and why you can have confidence in that. So, really interesting. Um, but one of these guys that was kind of um, kind of big into like promoting this, uh, I can't remember. I, mean, I think he was in the mid 1900s. Was this guy named Cornelius Van Til? And then uh, one of his uh, students was John Frame. And we had to read a book called The Doctrine on the Knowledge of God. It was like this thick book. And so, but, you know, for those that are nerdy into that type of thing, it's kind of like, well, how do you even know that you know? And so, and how does sin cloud your judgment and understanding what you know? And so you can get kind of off on some of those, um, not necessarily rabbit trails, but if you're interested in those things, there's some stuff that you can think about. I just hadn't ever thought about, you know, how do I know that I know? Just with something like, I don't know, I guess you know. Or you don't know, right? It's, it is or it isn't. But there's more that goes into it. And so, um, and so having that you know, I, idea, like God is, is encouraging us to know him more. And that's something that really God desires, is this knowledge uh, of him. And so, in 1 John, it's interesting when you read 1 John, how... John is um, kind of making some of these, like, he's basically just stating these facts and kind of taking you on a journey that sometimes seems like he's meandering a little bit and even repeating himself a little bit. And and I guess that's true to some degree. Um, But when you step back, you kind of think, like, well, who is he writing to and why is he writing? And so we have to kind of glean from what he's writing even the fact that it's written by John, there's a lot of like parallels to John's gospel, but he doesn't anywhere sign his name. It's not like a typical letter that you see to a particular church or a group. And, um, but church history says it's John, and so there's good confidence in that. But even like what he's dealing with, like he's dealing with this idea about knowing certain things and certain behaviors, and we'll get into a little bit of it, one of those, those ideas that was kind of floating around at the time, I mean, I guess you could call it a religion or belief system, uh, was this idea of Gnosticism. Now, the word Gnosis is the word that we see in Scripture, is when we see to know, it's typically that word. And so um, Gnosticism had this basing off of Plato, and we don't have to go too much into Plato, but essentially, there's kind of two worlds. There's the world of like physical reality, like, I say physical reality, but like matter. And then there's something else, right? And so ideas or this sense of something beyond just the physical sense, like where does emotion come? Where does um, morality come from? Uh, These ideas of virtues, like justice and things that, are, that we have a sense of, but they aren't grounded anywhere physical. It's kind of the spiritual world, and so those would be something that should be promoted, right? Virtues, this idea of like fairness and justice and goodness and love and you know all the things that you could think about that we say like these are all good things. Like that's what they believe. So they kind of said the spirit, this kind of non-physical world, is something that is good. We're trapped though in a physical world where. are, are, and it's not necessarily anti-biblical at all, because we would say that in the flesh, we have these similar things, we call it sin, but that is what causes you to do the things that go against these ideals. And so essentially, matter bad, body bad, spirit good. And so Gnosticism was kind of taking that as a, like integrating that into the biblical understanding and so, when it came to the person of Jesus, what, what, what do we take as you know something a truism about Jesus that he's what in sort of, What's that? Son of God. Son of God. Well, we actually, we'll get to that. But when we talk about his humanity and his, we we'll saw spirit or deity, that we say what doctrinally? Okay, yeah. And so, again, that's not necessarily in Scripture, like in the way that you said it, but we affirm this as like a theological statement to say, Jesus was fully man and fully God. And so, although, you know, when you learn in school, you're like 100%, 100% is 200%. How do you have 200%? But that's not exactly what we're talking about, right? So, but that he was fully God and fully man and not devoid of either. Um, So, Gnosticism, and this is kind of why, where that came out of. Gnosticism was like, well, Jesus was spirit but he couldn't be fully man because if he was fully man, we know matter is bad and body is bad. Then like his humanity and his flesh would would then have sinfulness that comes with it and body's bad. So he must not be body at all. And so it was almost some had a, a belief, I think they called it docetism, where it was like he appeared to be human, but wasn't actually human. Like he ate with people and he walked on water and he did it. Although that's not usually a human thing. But, you know, he did all the things that were typically human. He walked on the earth earth with with everyone else. Um, But it was kind of an appearance. And so, or some would say that in Jesus' baptism, and we we can pull this out a little bit, that, you know, when the Holy Spirit came down, that's like when the Spirit descended, like he was man up until that point. But then, uh, and then at a certain point at the cross, then he wasn't man at all. You know, or just a just body was there. So Jesus was kind of like this different forms. So that was, you know, so when you read John, so you go in kind of like a little historical thing. When you read John, you're like, why is he saying the things that he's saying? And it really comes down to like the fact, like, well, how do you know? Like, how, well, how would you counter the fact that like Jesus appeared human, you know? And maybe that appearance, like you still like could physically touch someone and still, you know, feel something but is he really physically there? It's kind of like one of those mind-blowing things. Do you know, like, when you touch somebody, your atoms aren't actually touching, right? Anyway, it's chemistry, but <laughs> that's kind of always the thing, is, like, you have a field that you're only really touching their field, and so, anyway, we don't need to go into that. So, so, you talk about physics, you're like, hey, so what does that look like? You're splitting hairs here. But, anyway, so... So we want to know, like, and have confidence in who Jesus is. And so that's kind of, like, where we, where we get it from. What's that? <laughs> you are, but you're not actually touching me, so. Uh, what's that? That could be, it might, it might be legally defensive. So, anyway, when I talk about, anyway, electricity, I get into that, but anyway, which seems weird, but. It is related. All right, that's off topic. So, so again, when they, these types of beliefs, while they sound plausible, they deny the experience of the apostles. And so John, he's, he's wanting to counter these notions. And so John is writing, which would appear to believe he's using the language of kind of fatherly language. You'll pick it up in even 1 John chapter 5. But he says little children. And he says, you know, kind of this kind of fatherly, fatherly language. Um, so we think that he's towards the end of his life. Uh, and there's other reasons for that as well. Um, But remember how even when we looked at our in-depth study of even kind of like um, elders and overseers, I looked at the Church of Ephesus, how even in Ephesus you saw kind of a a change over time. And even when we get to Revelation, when John is writing, this is probably a little bit before then, um, this is likely before Revelation, is that, Ephesus has kind of gone through, you know, he's, he's even being rebuked a little bit. And so, John may even be writing from Ephesus, and this might be something that is even happening at the church of Ephesus itself, but can't say that for certain. So, these things that philosophy is kind of infecting the church, and so this idea of when he said, as overseers, you need to protect the flock, he's doing so through this letter. All right, there's a long background to it. Let's start chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, so what does John say is our first belief on being born of God? So right there in verse 1. Everyone who believes what? Okay, so what does that entail? Jesus being the Christ. Okay, so we've got this idea of Messiah, which is the Jewish term, and the Messiah meant it's a promised one, it's a little, like, close to that, he, he was a promised one, uh, more so, what's that? Anointed. anointed one, yeah, coming kind of in the line of a king where Samuel anointed David in this aspect of that, but he was promised to be such, and so what else comes along with understanding Jesus as the Messiah? Okay. So he's going to be the Savior. You can even think of like the Messiah when you think of um, you know, some of his verses we quote at Scripture, right? Or I said <laughs> quote at Christmas time, the scripture that we kind of quote at Christmas time, right? That what is this son going to be? Yeah. The government is going to rest on his shoulders. Yeah. So all of these things that kind of come along with that as far as the characteristics of the Messiah. But even like beyond that, right? You know, Jesus was not just like some teacher. He wasn't just some sage. He wasn't even just some miracle worker. Like, he was in this line of history, right? Rooted into the fabric of Jewish understanding that a Messiah repeatedly through scripture, through the prophets, and even way back into, you know, even if you think of, um, to Eve right saying that there is going to be somebody who is going to crush the head of the serpent or through Abraham right saying that like through your line will be this worldwide blessing um that all of the nations of the world will be blessed and then you have like a comp- you know through David and and a king is going to come and then through the prophets and all of these things like for hundreds and thousands of years you've had this promise of this person coming and Jesus fulfills that person coming. So to say that Jesus is the Messiah is like the long-awaited, anticipated, promised one who is here, who is to fulfill all of these things. So he's just more than just again like a great teacher and something that you can acknowledge. Um, and so we have this idea is like that's kind of the first understanding of who Jesus was. Like Jesus is the one that was promised. To his people that God had been talking about. So he's fulfilling um, these promises as being the Christ. Now, John said, uses the language that those, um, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you have been born of God. Now, why do you think he uses that language, born of God? Like, we might say, like, you are a believer if you are born of God. You know, if you believe that, I mean, he says that you are. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ. But he says something even more than that. Like, why the, why the phrase born of God? Or even just kind of this understanding of being born of God. Okay. And so, and that was something what, that Jesus, and we looked at that chapter, right? Jesus talked to Nicodemus and said, you must be born from above. Um that's how Jesus uses the language. John is kind of getting clearer to the point. You're born of God. And Nicodemus, he, he was like, oh, that makes sense. Like, how did he respond? Yeah. I'm gonna I mean, to talk to mom about this. yeah. so almost like, well, how can anybody be born again? You know, like, he was kind of, you know, throwing that back in a, in a way like, I, I don't get what you're saying. And Jesus kind of responds. So, again, this you have this idea of kind of a, you know, a link to the past, right? If you think, um, how do you know your parents are your, let's say, biological parents? DNA. What's that? DNA. Okay. Have you have you verified DNA-wise to your parents? So you could, right? But so far, like, you probably trust, like, I haven't said, Mom, we're going to have a DNA test. That might be insulting. I don't know. <laughs> But so far, you've trusted your mom is your mom because she says that she's your mom, and, and she didn't she, kill me. She's, always, she's always been boring. And she said, "I brought you into this world. I can take you out." So you're like, "Okay, you brought me into this world." What do you mean by "brought me into this world"? So, and make sure you're mine. I feel like sometimes I want to do that to my children, right? <laughs> Are you really my child? So, so, but it's, that's kind of a, you know, interesting thing. Like you've ever, if you ever thought about or, you know, like our link to who our past is or even our, you know, our parents are kind of built on this trust and this bond. I mean, you even get like these, why is the story of the hospital mix up so like crazy is, I mean, that doesn't happen usually that often. At least I don't think it happens that often. Um, But the fact that, like, in childbirth, you know, like, this baby was from this woman, and so this baby is linked to this, you know, there's a witnessing that is involved in this. Um, so, was that... Yes, exactly, exactly. So there's this kind of familial link, right? And there's this adoption-like language that is spoken of through scripture. But like, there's there's so much more by being said instead of like, you know, are you a follower of Jesus or are you a believer? Like being like born of God like has this like greater significance in this connection, a stronger connection to to God. And and John uses that frequently. Um, to kind of like you know, little children, like I want you to you know think in that kind of language, um, because there's so much more that comes with it, right? Like with the the being a child of God, right? There's this idea, this sense of love and care, protection. There's this heritage. There's this you know uh, reward or birthright. All the things that are spoken of in Scripture and, and even more. And so John uses that language. And the first thing to understand, you know, that you're born of God is to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that all the things that were promised, that God said was going to happen, like you're making that link, like he is the fulfillment of that. That's a huge statement that you need to say. Not that like Jesus, like, yeah, he said some smart things, you know. And maybe he did do a miracle or two, but maybe to them it was a miracle because he was just wiser and, you know, knew how to do party tricks or something, you know. But like, it's not, that's something more than that, that could he even do something Superhuman, you know, you could even say God works through certain people um, as miracle workers that they couldn't even do without the help of God, right? There are prophets who did that, but none of those prophets were the spoken one, the one who was awaited. And a lot of even the people that came in that line showed that they weren't that person by the disappointments and the things that they did. And we looked at that at Hebrews and all the, the struggles that they had. And so um, what's the second measure? on how we can know that we're born of God. What does he say in, in verse 2? Yeah. That's really an interesting picture, right? To love the children of God. And so, why do you think that's such a big deal? Okay. So, your family. Okay. So. Yeah, and John says that earlier, you know, to kind of make that point. So John is loved, and we are made in his image so we can love as well. And so loving the children of God, what, what does that show? You, you have this idea of kind of family, right? But what's what's a little bit different about everybody within the, the church? What's that? The Spirit, of God. the Spirit of God definitely connects us and, and helps us to do that. Um, but, you know, and again, we've seen this idea of, like, what it means to love others, but... Uh, when we love the other children of God, it shows us right that we're not alone within like, what we're doing. So last week, we kind of said, like we all have our own race that we have to run. And there's this great cloud of witnesses that might be encouraging us, like the fans in the stands, but it's almost like we're all running together in this race. So we all have our own lane, and we all have our own obstacles, but we have this idea that we're together. And so, loving the children of God is kind of part of that. Now, as a family, as well, is loving your brothers and sisters easy in your own biological family? No. Some some are easier than others, right? Um, And so, is that any different within the church? No. So, uh, you know, we're all different, and so that's you know, we've talked about again these things. So, how do we show how do we show love to others? Because he says that by loving. You know the children, children of God. So, how do we show? How do we show that love? What are some two, ways? Two, three, and four. What's that? Two, three and four. <laughs> you want to get some highlights or some? Uh, you know. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Starts with me more yeah. So this idea of humility is something, something like that. And so this idea of humility, right, then leads us to then be able to do things and showing love. And we show love in different ways, like the one another's. And so, so showing our loves in in uh, in action, right. And so that's a part of our faith as well is not just believing, but how our beliefs affect what we do. And so that was, you know, John says that this is preceded by a love of the Father, almost kind of like as a presupposition to what he's talking about. So um, whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So that is the children of God. And so if you're going to believe that Jesus is the Christ, you'll love the Father. And as a byproduct of that, then you should love the children of God. And why? Why is that? Because we have a common ground in the love of the Father. That's almost like a where we can kind of like um, pull back and resolve any of our differences, um, which is hard, right? It's hard sometimes, especially when you think you're right and someone else thinks they're right. Um, I'm dealing with a situation right now with a family that you know uh, that we're seeing like we're not seeing eye to eye with. Um, but the thing that I keep going back to and reminding myself of is that if you are a child of God and I'm a child of God, that we're having this temporal difference that I believe I'm right and you believe you're right, so we can't be both right on the situation. But in the end, we're going to be together in eternity, right? And so whatever difference we have right now is really like small in comparison. And if we said like, well, we both love the Father, so let's start there, and then... Let's see if we can work through this, so um, so you can pray on that end uh, for this issue. I said in my last correspondence that I seek restitution in this situation, and they gave all the reasons why I was wrong, and then I don't know how we can resolve this, and it was like, but that's what we have to, right? Like you may not see that, but if we are both like seeking each other's good, you know then then we can see the benefit and so I might have a log in my eye, so help me remove that. And if someone needs to come alongside, and it's, it's my issue, so let's get somebody else involved in this situation. But that is so helpful, right? And John just kind of uses that language in what we are talking about. So then he says, our belief can then become knowledge. And by what measure? Right? Because he says, everyone believes Jesus is the Christ. But then verse 2, by this we know... That we love the children of God by doing what, obeying His commandments, and again, if you read like earlier verses, and we'll get to some of these verses, you'll see hear, hear some of these things or see some of these things if you're reading along. Um, like John has already kind of talked about some of these ideas, right, uh, about what it be obeying and and being obedient. Um, so, why is obeying His commandments? Part of that belief becoming knowledge.
1: Well, once you obey, you you begin to uh, reap the benefits of obedience and experience those benefits. Ultimately, you know, going back to the beginning,
0: you know, no one gets to the Father but by faith. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no I get, yeah. But you know, ultimately, if it, all of this requires faith. You know, loving
0: others, you know, acting in obedience because we believe what God has said. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, and so you've got this idea of faith, and that's kind of like again where we spent the last few weeks in Hebrews, kind of talking about like what is faith, and really this faith is is a growing confidence in the Lord, and how do we know like our belief spurs actions, but then those actions, like what? How does Jesus say that you will know people? Like, you'll know they are my disciples by what? There's a couple of verses that he's talked about. What's that? How they love one another, true, but you'll know, you know, by their fruit, yeah. So, what does he say specifically? I don't know, I'm coloring that. So, anyway, you'll know if you're my disciples by my fruit as well. Um, and so, fruit is, again, like the actions that come out of that. So, same thing for, for you, like how do you know... And how has your faith grown? Well, your faith is grown, and usually, hopefully, you can look back at your the fruit that was born out of your life and see that as a demonstration. So, even if you like doubt somewhere along the way, those doubts, hopefully, you can go back to what you know is true and what's demonstrated. So, my son likes to ask me all these questions about, you know, like he's usually at, he. He's he's in that you know teenage years where he's trying to figure out like what he can get away with type of thing, and so he's always asking me like, hey, can I watch this movie? And so he's always asking me that question. What do you think? Can I watch this movie? And I'm like, you know, because he's over 13, so can he watch this PG 13 movie? And so it's like, well, some even though there's someone's labeled it this way, it doesn't mean like the content is always, you know always oh, good about it. And one of the things, I don't know how we came up to, like, going about this, but some of it had to, had to do with language. And I said, for myself, there's certain movies that I won't watch because I'm bothered by it, and so I just won't even watch it. Even if it was, you know, whatever rating, it's like, I know the content, and I just won't watch it for myself. And I said, for language, I said, usually language, like, doesn't bother me. And he said, and he said, well, then why would it be the truth for him? And I said, there was a time in my life that my language, I use coarse language a lot, especially in college, and I believe I've shared this with you guys, and so after becoming a believer, it was something like I became convicted of it, and then I just stopped, and it was almost like the fact that like something about my life has changed was how I'm able to look back and see like that there's something, like, that the Lord has removed or at least given me a conviction on. And so if somehow in the flesh, right, um, this idea of language, like, comes out, right, or even comes to my mind, I repent of it. And so that's, that's, like, something, like, you look back on things in your life and actions in your life, right, that demonstrate a measure of your faith and your belief in what you're looking at. So that's things that, like, the what the Jews would put as like these Ebenezer stones, right, to kind of remember this event, are things that God puts in our lives. And so when we think about obeying his commands and the things that he tells us to do, those are ways that we can look back from our belief. Well, I believe this to be true, but it's really the rubber meets the road. And how do you act now when you're put in a situation where you have to forgive someone? You know, it's easy to say like, oh, it's easy to forgive. Well, when somebody says something wrong about you, you know, do you return, <laughs> return fire? Or do you say, like, how can we you know, get beyond this? And how do we seek forgiveness? And so all those are difficult situations, right? But these are the ways that this obedience right, then becomes knowledge in the faith that we say that we have. And so you know, those are the ways that, again, we can, can grow in that. And so John will later qualify... That loving God equals loving His commandments, and so then He says that His commandments. He describes them as not burdensome. And you know, we've got this idea of being heavy or a weight. And we looked at, uh, you know, when when Jesus said, you know, my light, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and we kind of studied that for a little bit and looked at what that that looked like in, in a study in the past, but. You know, why do you, why do you think he says that his commandments are not burdensome? It's almost like, you know, obeying God shows that you know God and love God and you are a child of God, and oh by the way, those commandments aren't burdensome.: promise the Holy Spirit so that if
1: we are a true child of God, then we have the help of the Holy Spirit to help us do all of these
0: things. Okay. Okay, so great, so you got, you got one is like the heavy lifting, right, and the battling of the flesh can be done through the Spirit. Jesus demonstrated that, right, when his temptations, right, he was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted, and how he, how he kind of fought those temptations was through the Spirit's use of the Scripture, Yes.
1: what you said last time you talked because you told them the truth. But if I could not, or you can't remember it. <coughs> so a lot of times non-compliance with those will create a lot of problems in
0: your life that will go away if you will just be in compliance. You can't tell if you will. True. There is some expediency that you know telling the truth is just more helpful. <laughs> uh So you don't, have to, you don't have to remember your lies. But I think, smart enough to remember Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, but it goes right beyond that, and so, yeah? Well, I think um, there maybe a
1: contrast between uh, the way it was before, especially with...
0: Oh, yeah, and why were they burdensome? Because they were impossible to really. I, I think because they were, it
1: was impossible to comply with all of those commands at any given time. Mm-hmm.
0: So, if I contrasted, you know, our obedience, we should say that our obedience should not be um, under compulsion or with burden, but our obedience should be met with what? What should our attitude be? Okay. Yeah. And so, all, yeah, all of those things, right? You, you want your you want your children to obey you, not like begrudgingly, like, fine, I'll do it because you ask me, right? But you'd, you'd hope, right, that they would do it with joy, right? I'm going to do it because, yes, Father, I think you are right, right? Um, so I was going to contrast before the Lord saved
1: me. I didn't have that desire. So if I'm trying to just do what He commands, that's a burden.
0: Yeah. But... He saved
1: me, it became a desire to please him, even though I didn't do it perfectly. I didn't do it all the time, and there was the anger <clears> of <throat> missing or not doing it. However, there was still that desire to um, please him in a
0: faith. So, yeah. So. And it's not like, you know, we don't murder because I'm going to go to jail because of it, right? We don't murder on the flip side, flip side, is that by the contrast, like we see others as better than ourselves. And then we should want to help them, even if they are harming us, because as Jesus said on the cross, right, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing, right? to one time when Christ said, the my yoke is my burden is light. Yeah. Yeah. John, you want to add that? Philippians uh, You and Philippians two again. It says God who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So he gives us the margin orders and he comes alongside of us and energizes us. Yeah. And when we looked at Ephesians five, right? You know, where we submit to one another, right? But how do we do that? What's that? I know and he gave some practical measures, right? That we sing songs of song, songs and psalms of spiritual yeah. Exactly. So you've got this you know, you've got kind of all like this picture, right, that that Jesus you started, is seen in different ways through the New Testament writers, and then John is just echoing all of these command you know, these things as well and just saying that is like this is how you know. And so he ends, you know, this this section, right, by saying that we believe Jesus is the son. He says that in verse 6, right? So it goes from believing that Jesus is the Christ to the son of God. And so there's again this direct connection to God Being of the Father, the Messiah is not just this person that was sent, you know, born of Mary and Joseph. But no, Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God that was sent from the Father to redeem mankind. So He's being of the Father, and that is necessary in our faith and necessary in our knowing that these things are to be true, that justifiable knowledge. So, what is the result? What does he say in verse 5? We're, we're, we're overcomers. We have this this word as victory. Uh, it's interesting, like, the, it's, it's, <laughs> the translation is like this victory that is victorious over the world. He uses the word Nike, that you've probably seen on shoe wear. Um, and so, it's that understanding, right? There is this. This uh, victory or overcoming, um, and he uses the terminology of the world. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said, and so you know, how do we know this is written by John? Well, in John's gospel, he says Jesus. You know, Jesus said, "You'll have tribulation, but take heart, because I have overcome the world." And so, what do we understand about this idea of the world? Well, if you look back in chapter two, you. John had kind of fleshed this out a little bit more in, in verses 15 through 17. and first, sorry, not John, but first John, chapter two, so just a few few chapters back. He says, verse 15, "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's interesting, like the terminology he uses. He's going to kind of switch that to eternal life, but this abiding forever with God is in this understanding of kind of choosing God over choosing the world. And what does he mean by the world, not the people in the world, but the sinfulness of the world? And he kind of spells it out, like the desires of the flesh, the things that like you know prompt you to like I want it, I need it. Those are the things that I desire. This this um, uh, desire of the eyes again, so not physically, but what's seen. But they kind of go you know in tandem. And this pride of life, like this arrogance and this belief and justification, the 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 opposite of humility, right? But believing you're right because you are who you are and you know, thinking that you're better than you should be. And so all of those things kind of compound desires that go against what the Father desires. And then if we look just a little bit back before chapter 5, when he he talks in chapter 4, verse 1, in 1 John, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That coming in the flesh is this idea to kind of go against Jesus only being spirit. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. And so, again, you know... He kind of repeats these things about this idea of being obedient and loving one another and how that, you know, kind of goes against what this idea of the world is. But, but understanding these things and having a proper understanding, which is seen through the actions that you do, you have this victory. You overcome the world. And why do we need to overcome the world Is it because the the flesh is bad and matter is bad and all of that? I mean, he really speaks kind of in spiritual tones when he's talking about sin, not something that's physical, although it can be. But why do we need to overcome the world? Because we, in our flesh, that's what pulls us away from being obedient to the Father. And so we need to know that we have been victorious. And so what is that victory over the world? In First John chapter five verse four, he says that victory is our faith. All right. So going back to the beginning, you know that it is our faith, right? That is what allows us to do these things. That victory is our faith, but we can know that our faith is true again through the actions and through um, how we love one another and all of these things. So this is kind of again speaking in terms of of kind of what Hebrews eleven was saying: this confidence that we have in the Lord. So, we'll, uh, we'll pause right there. And I was like, man, I'm going to get through this one pretty easy. And then, and then yesterday, I was like, I went, I went deep down the rabbit hole. So, I gave you a lot of background, a lot of understanding for these things. But they really start to set us up. And we'll get to the, the, the verse that, you know, was, was most important in my mom's life. Um, but this kind of, again, sets the stage of how we, um, you know, should be within community with one another, um, not just again our faith is in isolation, but our faith is within the context of a body of believers and how we're able to like carry that out and even encourage one another. And so we'll continue this uh, next week and